picked up, put back to bed, made a cup of tea. Plan, TLC, 999, any issues. Discharged back to 111, SOS advice given. Does any of this ring a bell? Are you guilty of writing that on your paperwork? Or have you ever cringed reading it on the previous PCR of a patient who's now critically unwell in front of you? Discharging patients safely is a vital part of modern paramedic practice and is essential to protecting both patients and ourselves. With an average discharge rate of around 40% by ambulance crews nationally and NHS improvement strategies focusing on increasing this number to protect the NHS and patient care, we need to ensure that we're discharging patients appropriately and with comprehensive safety net advice in case they should deteriorate. By giving this comprehensive discharge information and worsening advice for our patients, as well as a clear plan for them and other healthcare providers to follow, we add real protection to these decisions. That's why this month we're taking a long, hard look at our discharge. Hmm. Maybe we should rephrase that. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon. I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And this month we are discussing the topic of safety netting. So Simon, why have we given an entire episode to talk about something that we do right at the end of the job? I think we mention it in a lot of our episodes about safety netting and actually um, sometimes we just glance over it, but it's although it's right at the end of the job, it's probably one of the most important things that we do at any job. Discharging a patient is probably one of the riskier areas of our practice, and I think that we don't always give it the justice it deserves. So I think it's um, really important that we, we cover this thoroughly so we can help all our colleagues out there to um, really be able to uh, make the most out of safety net and to make sure their patients are safe. Yeah, I completely agree. So discharging is most definitely one of the riskier things that we do. And certainly in my practice now, I would much rather do a thoracostomy all day long than discharge a patient because the, the variables associated with that are so, so much greater and there's so much more to consider to impact that decision. But also there's so many more things that, that could potentially go wrong. And safety netting, good safety netting is the key to making discharges safe isn't it that that really is is what it all comes down to yes you need to make a good decision when you're discharging someone you need to make the right decision but but safety netting really is where it becomes an art form isn't it yeah it's definitely something that we're going to need to get better at as well because there's a lot of strategic direction coming out nationally that the ambulance service needs to start looking at its avoidable conveyance rates i think it's something that paramedics although we do a semi-decent percentage of it already it's going to become an increasing part of our workload discharging is a massively important part of, of modern paramedic practice and you could argue the requirement to discharge so many more patients you know going right back to uh, that original taking healthcare to the patient paper that i was having to uh, mention in my student paramedic interviews going right back to that that it all comes down to discharging patients and avoiding hospitals and making appropriate non-conveyance decisions because that's what's right for the majority of our patients. The majority of our patients can be managed in the community and so much more of the modern day NHS is moving towards this discharge and diagnose or diagnose at home way of management because 
yes, okay, it's cheaper, but that's not the, the main reason that we do things, but it's better for the patients, it's what they want, and it avoids lots of the risks that are associated with with going into hospital. So things like, we'll probably come on to talk about them in a little bit more detail later, but particularly the elderly can become very, very quickly institutionalized after only a short period of time going to hospital. So if we can avoid that whole process and manage people properly in the community, then that, that's better for everyone involved in that healthcare contact. I think we need to remember that um, it's actually really difficult once a patient's been transferred to hospital and is in an emergency department to sometimes get them out again paramedics have an ambulance at their disposal when they work in the ambulance service and they have transport on the doorstep and i don't have that in an in an ed and neither do my colleagues we obviously have pts contracts but depending on the area some of those contracts have demands and capacity issues so for example, on a, on a weekend, if I want to get a patient out at maybe three o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes those PTS providers don't have capacity to get someone home. And I physically have no way of getting them out of the ED. So then they end up being a social admission. And that, as we'll talk about later, gives all sorts of uh, problems of in its own right. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many more people involved with the patient's care when you're managing them in hospital and assessing them in hospital. And sometimes that's a really good thing, but more people means more systems and more departments and that means potentially more delays. So there's some research out there that shows between 2013 and 2015, so it's reasonably old data now, but 1.1 million bed days were lost in that period of time simply due to issues between departments and and issues between transfer of care and one of the difficult things about being a paramedic but in this case one of the really good things and really helpful things is it's mainly just you and you've got a lot of one-to-one time with your patients and you can give some really focused care and you can be that real care coordinator for that patient and act as that single point to 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 get what needs to be done done for them without necessarily having to go through lots of other departments and there being lots of delays involved and we actually found in the operational productivity and performance in english nhs ambulance trusts unwanted variation report by lord carter coles in 2018 that 40 percent of in-hospital beds are actually taken up by people that have been brought in by an ambulance so we are a moderately impacting factor on hospital bed capacity so i think we have a duty as healthcare professionals to do something about that and i think we're not talking necessarily about non-conveyance we're talking about appropriate conveyance and i think that part of making people comfortable in managing appropriate conveyance or non-conveying people as part of that is that we need to learn how to safety net and like you say it's not about inappropriately non-conveying these patients or even not taking patients to hospital that are particularly undifferentiated that we're not feeling comfortable to discharge but it's it's about reframing some of the traditionally held viewpoints that going to hospital is always the safer one and going to hospital is always a a safer option for patients because that's not always the case so i'll use a use a case study to demonstrate that which definitely i uh, i look back on some of my more junior practice and i think i've made similar decisions but 
you, uh, you you perhaps go to an elderly patient uh, in their home who is otherwise normally quite well, but is presenting with some mild confusion today, uh, and you're not quite sure what's causing that. So there are a confusion query cause, and you go, right, get in the van, off to hospital, because you need a workup. And so that patient sits in the ambulance for three hours outside, possibly longer these days with the hospital queues being what they are, but they're sitting in a bed in the ambulance uh, whenever they need a drink or whether whenever they need something to eat, it's brought to them. They don't move off the trolley. They don't go up and get it for themselves like they would in their house. They're offloaded to a halo corridor where they spend another four hours and eventually they get taken to a bathroom, maybe by one of the HCAs there, maybe by one of the nurses that are looking after the halo corridor. And by this point, they've spent seven hours in bed. So understandably, they're stiff. They've got difficulty moving uh, and they need real assistance to get onto their legs, to get onto the toilet and get back to the bed. And so the nurse or HCA notes down that they're off legs. And then another three hours go by. Finally, they're assessed by one of the doctors in the team. It's an FY2 who's noted some basal crackles on their chest. So orders a chest X-ray. When the radiographer comes round, the chest X-ray is done in the bed because that's easier for them and they just need to get it done quickly. And they've already been told that this patient's going to have trouble standing and needed supporting. And so a minor chest infection is found. Maybe they've got some raised white cells uh, on their blood count, but they're otherwise normal. And that's likely the cause of the confusion and they're suitable for oral antibiotics. But when they come to have their mobility assessment... It's poor because they've been lying in a bed for 11 hours. They're now tired and exhausted because they've not been able to get any rest in this noisy, bright hospital and they're feeling stiff all over. So they're admitted as off legs. That's not even the reason that we brought them to hospital, but they're admitted as a patient who's off legs and unsafe for discharge home. So they go onto a medical ward and they're now being managed as an inpatient. That's more expense. There's a greater risk of hospital acquired infections. This is a patient that might be termed a quote unquote bed blocker for a number of days who wouldn't necessarily have needed to be there. And there might be further delays getting this patient back home to uh, to to where we've picked them up from because their supportive discharge team might be struggling to take on further referrals. And so there might be a couple of days before they're able to accept them in the community. And before you know it, you've got this patient that was confusion query cause with a mild chest infection that has now had a number of days in hospital, a greater risk of hospital acquired infection, who's been taking up a bed that might have been needed for someone else in that hospital queue and has had their frailty increased because of a reduction in their functional ability. So really, we can see how small decisions by us can have big, big impacts, not only for a patient, but for the wider health system. You paint quite a grave picture there, Josh, but it's definitely true. And actually, all along, what we could have done is just assess this patient, realise that actually they've probably got a lower respiratory tract infection and got some antibiotics for them from the GP and we could have safety netted them at home and we could have prevented a lot of this. Not just that, about all the complications going to hospital also can produce. We know that it could worsen delirium. We know that it can worsen dementia. We know that it increases your risk of falls due to patients' unfamiliarity with the environment. I don't know about you, Josh, but I've heard lots of my paramedic colleagues be concerned about their falls risk at home. Well, actually, what about their falls risk in hospital? The chances of them falling in a hospital environment due to it being unfamiliar is considerably higher. We know all this from multiple documents about 
reducing long hospital stays from NHS improvement, about falls in older people and the NICE guidelines and their prevention. We know that functional mobility and cognitive decline occur the longer we leave people in hospital. On top of that, we actually know that most patients over the age of 75 don't want to be in hospital. They want to be treated at home where possible. And I think it's our role to facilitate that. And so hopefully we've sold you on the idea that discharge is worth the risk. And yes, there is an increased risk, but a lot of the time that's an increased risk to us or a perceived increased risk. We know that keeping patients out of hospital where we can is often a lot better for them. So we're not going to focus on how to discharge patients, which patients are the right ones to to discharge, because that's a massively broad topic. It's outside of the scope of what we're trying to achieve with this podcast. And it's very unique to each situation. So we're just going to move forward. You found a patient that you want to discharge, that you think is appropriate for discharging. And uh, you've considered things like their ideas, their concerns and their expectations to help feed into that. And we're going to talk about how we can safely leave them at home, what things we can do to adequately safety net them and how we can give that advice. But just before we move on to that point, there's a couple of little pearls that I think are pertinent to raise here. And that's if you're if you're struggling to make a discharge decision. I, I find, as we've said in this podcast and lots of others, ideas, concerns, expectations, really, really helpful to share that decision with your patient because it's not just your decision to make, it's their body, it's their health. And so they need to feed into that. So taking on, on board ideas, concerns and expectations is really, really helpful and uh, has helped me make that decision when you're sitting on the fence. And also something from... Uh, a model of consultation by Hellman's. It's his folk model. So there's lots of different models of medical consultation. You've probably heard of the medical model. Uh, we're going to discuss neighbors' uh, model of consultation later. But uh, something while I was preparing for this podcast in Hellman's folk model of consultation was ask yourself the question, what would happen if we do nothing? And sometimes that's a really good question to ask yourself because Often with a lot of health problems, nothing is needed. The trick to medicine is maintaining homeostasis for a patient to allow their body to fix themselves. So asking yourself what was realistically happen if we do nothing might be helpful because we might not need to do anything. But also time can sometimes really help that decision making. So sometimes doing nothing and allowing a decision to reveal itself can be really, really helpful. But the key to doing that, the key to watching and waiting is a good safety net, which is what we're going to talk about. So, Simon, what is a safety net? What is it? What are we talking about? There's a definition that I really like from St. Emlyn's blog, which basically outlines safety netting as a term used to describe the advice we give to our patients or their relatives or carers as we discharge them in their case from the emergency department, but obviously in our case from our pre-hospital care. However, it's not just about that advice. It actually has quite a few components to it. And I think we need to break those down and go through them and tell you exactly what should be in your safety netting. Yeah, and we both really like Neighbours' model of consultation for that, don't we? So uh, the, the wider model of consultation is connect with your patient, summarise your findings, hand that over either to the patient or to somebody else and, and a, agree a management plan, safety net them, and then practice good housekeeping, which is making sure you're 
you're ready to see your next patient. But focusing in on that safety netting section, that fourth section of, of the model of consultation, Neighbor presents some what-if questions to help you guide how you're going to safety net your patient. And broadly speaking, it's predict what could happen. So what if things go well and tell them what to expect? And then what if there's an unexpected turn of events? So what if we're wrong or what if they deteriorate and go through the motions of that with them and then come up with plans and contingency plans for each of those eventualities? And I think that's a really nice way to guide what we're going to talk about with our patient. So Simon, what if things go well? What do we need to be saying to patients in that section? We need to explain to our patients what we think is wrong with them and how we foresee the course of their illness continuing if we've got our diagnosis correct. It's really important to tell the patient how long they're going to be unwell for. How, you know, how long should this ha- how long should this last for? Because otherwise they're going to be recontacting healthcare early or potentially worse if it has gone on way longer than we would expect it to. They're not seeking out further help. It can be quite difficult, particularly when you're new, to commit to things like timelines and to commit to this stuff because I think we, I don't know about you, Simon, but certainly in my early days, I tried to try to avoid absolutes because through fear of being wrong, but it's a really important part of safety netting, not just what if we're wrong, when to call us back, but to, to give a forward timeline of what to expect. And I think you're absolutely right there. I think sometimes it is how long is a piece of string. Not everyone's going to fit the same mould. So we do have to give approximations. So let's give an example of that. If we think about a patient who presents with a cough and say we consider that to be an acute bronchitis, nothing too sinister, we would tell the patient that they will probably feel better from the acute illness within maybe a week, but actually we know that their cough can continue for several weeks after that. If we don't tell the patient that their cough can continue, that will probably mount in them seeking out further medical advice, maybe unnecessarily, like calling their GP, self-presenting to ED, or calling 111, or even calling us back because they they didn't know that they weren't supposed to be better by this point. Some symptoms last longer and we should advise them of that. On the flip side of that, if that cough goes on for too long, maybe actually our diagnosis wasn't right. If we have a smoker who's got a cough and maybe they're losing some weight, but obviously we've told them it's an acute infection. And then three months down the line, they still haven't seen their GP with a cough. Actually, we might have missed a a lung cancer. So we should be giving advice about what could go wrong. Something else that we also need to say in this section, Simon, as well as what to expect, is what treatments and what behaviours the patient needs to undertake in order to get healthy again, in order to aid the process of getting better. And that often we think about taking some pills and taking some medicines, and that's what patients often think about as well. But we need to be a little bit more holistic in care sometimes and give some health promotion advice. and you know, really have frank conversations with them that they need to stop smoking or change their diet or what has ever contributed to the health situation that they're in. Uh, Acute medical events do happen, but far more likely they are an acute event of a much longer lifestyle problem or chronic health problem that has been going ongoing for a, a long time. And most of the time, the, the treatment for these root causes is is changes in lifestyle. 
completely agree with that. Um, if we take an acute example, if we go to a minor rear end shunt RTC and we have a patient with some mild muscular neck pain, we need to make them aware that it's going to be worse the next morning and probably for a few days after that. We know that the treatment is to mobilize and to um, keep the neck moving. But if a patient doesn't know that these symptoms are going to get worse and that they need to do that treatment and the way they facilitate doing that is by taking good pain relief, which is actually a supportive measure. It's not going to cure the problem, but it will allow them to do the treatment, which is mobilizing. They're not going to engage with their management plan and then they're going to recontact other people. So we need to basically predict what we think is going to happen and reassure the patient so they know what is normal. Oh man, yeah. And the amount of people that need coaching on how to take over the counter analgesia properly uh lots of people think paracetamol is rubbish but it but it, it's really not it's a fantastic pain reliever as most people listening probably know but lots of patients think pain relief is a bit like house you know popping pills when you're in pain and don't understand or, or don't appreciate the wider analgesic regime that you need to do to to build up a serum level of analgesic, whatever it is, in, in your body. So uh, coaching patients about how to take analgesics properly, uh, how to take them at the right times of day with food, etc. And again, going back to the, the, the soft tissue injury, that, that the example that you gave, if it's worse in the morning, they need to have some analgesia by their bed ready for them so that they can take it half an hour, 40 minutes before they need to get up in the morning just so that they can ease that that quite painful process because, yeah, they're going to be stiff. They're going to be in pain. And it, it's all of this briefing, uh, briefing them that we might not think falls into safety netting properly uh, is really, really important for getting that patient to get healthier quicker and getting that patient to stick to our treatment plan to avoid us having to activate our safety net. And, and I think this is what people are most familiar with as safety netting. What's going to happen if the patient deteriorates or if I'm wrong? And we've got to take it on the chin that sometimes we will be wrong. Sometimes we'll, we'll come down to a number of differentials and we'll pick the most likely. You know, we'll use Occam's razor. If you, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, but very occasionally there'll be the odd zebra in there to catch us out. And, uh, and, and we do get diagnoses wrong or we do get working impressions wrong. And we need to prepare the patient for that with what to look out for if, if that is the case or for signs and symptoms of an expected potential deterioration. So the classic example of this is the patient who presents to us with an infection, uh, so maybe UTI or chest infection. And at the time that we see them, they're quite well. We think it's a, a simple chest infection, a simple bronchitis, or they perhaps present with some very early or minor potential sepsis markers. So they're a little bit tachycardic or something like that. And at the time that we see the patient, it might be entirely, entirely appropriate to watch and wait or try and treat them in the community with a dose of oral antibiotics. But infections do get worse. Patients do deteriorate. And so uh, we need to prepare them for the things to look out for. So really high grade fevers or rigors uh, in the context of chest infection, not no longer producing uh, sputum despite a continuing hacking cough blood in that sputum large amounts of blood in that sputum things like these 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 red flags that we would be looking for in our workup we need to prepare the patient to look out for and uh, and make them aware of when to call us back ambulance service culture has in the past 
led us to this point where you can walk into a crew room and your colleagues go, Simon, you know that patient you left at home yesterday? And suddenly you get really worried. And I think that's a natural feeling. But actually, that can be a normal part of medicine. We know that some people will deteriorate, but most people will get better. And when we saw that patient the day before, there was probably a completely different clinical picture than what our colleagues have seen on that day. And actually, it's a good thing that that patient's called back because it means that they've acted upon the safety netting that we've given them. And that's a, a positive outcome. That's something we should be pleased about, not be worried by. Well, and and sometimes you you might have wanted to take a patient to hospital. I, I, you know, I've, I've had patients where I've definitely been on the fence with them and I remember having very frank conversations with them, taking on, on board their viewpoint, as I say, their ideas, concerns, expectations. If it was just left up to me, they'd have probably gone into hospital because I'd have thought they were a little bit too poorly necessarily to leave at home. But for for whatever reason, they might have felt really strongly they want to try management in the community. Uh, and if that seemed like a reasonable plan, then uh, then that might be entirely appropriate. But Again, you need to have that tight safety net to catch them if uh, if it does go wrong and make them aware that uh, they need to have a low threshold for calling you back and not be pressured into uh, the treatment plan that, that, that we're drafting at the minute. This is something that some ambulance clinicians worry about. And actually, when we look at and speak to those who manage patient safety incidents, we know that... If you've made a reasonable plan with good safety netting and then someone deteriorates, that nearly never ends up in um, any form of action. What actually ends up in patient safety incidents is when we haven't acted upon a poorly patient or we haven't documented that we've recognized that that patient is poorly but through some other reason as you quite rightly said josh like their ideas their concerns their expectations maybe they didn't want transport for various reasons or that actually they were end of life care so you know we accept that they're poorly um, and we've justified that decision to leave them at home if you've left them at home at the point where they were actually poorly and we missed it that's very different than going to someone who has the potential to get worse, but might not. And you've given them good, uh, good management plan and good safety net and advice. And, and then they've deteriorated. They are completely different situations. The final part of that safety net, we told them what to look out for, Simon, but it's when to recontact us and who to recontact. So do you want to talk a little bit about recontacting healthcare? Because recontact rates are something that we hear a lot about in the ambulance service and maybe think is a bad thing. Well, I, th I think we just write SOS 999 on paperwork, isn't it? That's, uh, that's, what, mo that's what I know a lot of people do. Yep. Thank you. Think of that. Th thank you and good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously a bit of tug-in-cheek there. We, we know that SOS 909 isn't good enough. We need to give specific timeframes to patients that we've already talked about, about what we expect when they should get better or, or when they're getting worse. Once we've done that, we need to then direct them to the most appropriate people to call us back. Now, that might mean that there's two different options within your paperwork. It might be if such and such and such happens or you don't get better by this point, then you should consult your own GP. 
Or it might be, as the example you used earlier, Josh, with um, a minor chest infection that then develops actually or gets worse and it's an early pneumonia that then progresses, we then need to actually get them to call us back on 909 if they are really unwell, if they're getting features of fever and shivering and drowsiness and they're getting quite unwell. They need to call us back on an ambulance. So we might need to split these into features. Pediatrics do that really well because they have sort of amber flags that you should call GP or 111 for, and then red flags that you should go to an A&E or call 909 for. And I think we should probably do that with adults as well in the fact that we split some of our worsening advice where it's appropriate into you know, if these things happen, they're moderate, you should um, maybe speak to your GP, or if you don't get better, speak to your GP. But these things are, are quite serious. These are your red flags. And we need to verbally discuss these with the patient. Yeah. And so recontact rates then, Simon, are they a bad thing? Yeah. So I think traditionally, um, we've looked at recontact rates as a bad thing. In fact, there's a presentation I give to um, some first year student paramedics, I look at the negative impact of recontact rates in the fact that some people think that a higher non-conveyance rate equals a higher recontact rate. And actually, we know from data in the ambulance service from the National Audit Office that that's not true, that just because you have a higher non-conveyance rate doesn't equate to a higher non-contact rate. But that wasn't the question you asked me, though, was it, Josh? What you're actually asking is, is recontact a bad thing? Now, traditionally, we've always thought it was a bad thing because it obviously results in more workload back to the back to the service. But I think we need to spin that concept on its head and actually look at recontact as a good thing. If I discharge a patient from the emergency department and they then get worse and they have understood my safety netting advice and then they represent the next day, that should be a good thing. I should be glad about that because not only is the patient safe, but also that I, as the practitioner, am safe because they've understood the message that I've tried to get across. They've identified that they've got worse and they've come back. And actually, that should be a positive thing because we can't get everything right. A lot of illnesses, when we see them very early on, present as minor illnesses. Meningitis is a classic example. You can see some really minor symptoms in children. And actually, if you saw them six, 12 hours later, they are a completely different child. We can't hold the practitioner accountable for what they saw earlier on. We can't see with a crystal ball all of these potential deteriorations. If we see 100 patients with a viral illness, only one of them might then develop a complication from that. What we need to make sure is that that child comes back or that person comes back. And that's the importance of safety netting. That's the importance of recontact rates. So I think, yeah, we need to get rid of the concept that recontact is a bad thing. And that kind of brings us quite nicely on to the next topic, which is documentation and writing down the plan. Because the person that might be seeing your patient when they recontact so whether or not they've come to the A&E or, or whether it's it's another truck that's been called out to them they may not be the same clinician and clearly they're not going to be privy to to the plan that was discussed and so that's why it's really really important to yes document your assessment uh, and, and all of that down but really clearly document what your plan was and what your expectation for the progression of this disease was because yes they might have deteriorated and they might have got really unwell but they might be a little bit further along the expected progression of that disease. And if, you're, if the clinician's seeing them again, 
can appreciate and understand your work up and, and, and see where you were going, they might be able to offer a little bit more of that reassurance and that explanation that we talked about at the start of this consultation, just to reassure that patient that they are following the expected progression of the of the disease and they can reinforce some of the treatment advice and health promotion advice that, that the patient needs to do in order to continue getting better. In terms of keeping yourself safe as a practitioner, the clinical documentation is absolutely critical. And I think this is where a lot of people slip up and we end up with investigations and end up with questions around our practice. It's actually because that plan, as Josh quite rightly said, isn't robustly documented. We need to be really specific with our plan. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a couple of example plans and I'm going to stick them in the article for this episode. So go and check those out. Part of the safety netting advice is writing down exactly what we told the patient. So if we're giving them worsening advice, it is not good enough to write something like worsening advice given. What we need to do is specifically say what we told the patient. Now, the caveat to that would be if we are treating a condition where we always give the same worsening advice. So if you are, say, an urgent care practitioner and you see a lot of viral upper respiratory tract infections, what you could write is given ERTI worsening advice verbally and discussed red flags. As long as then you know exactly what you've told the Ooh, patient. Yeah, so so I I disagree with you slightly there, Simon. So I appreciate the point that you're making and, and you having worked far more in some urgent care governance systems uh, will have been a lot more used to this where you're working under a governance structure where they have they have almost a policy, don't they? They have a documented, this is our ERTI advice and this is, or this is our LUTs advice and this is what our practitioners will say. And so you've got that backing of, of that documented structure behind you. Uh, I've never worked in a governance structure like that. Uh, I don't in, well, I, I very rarely give worsening advice these days in, in my current job role, but certainly when I was working frontline, we didn't have that governance structure. And so I personally don't feel that that would be acceptable unless you are working in one of those governance structures i would still very much document down the uti or the lower you know urinary tract uh, and upper urinary tract red flags that, that i'd want the patient to look out for and, and very explicitly put it unless it's accepted practice in that service that i'm working for uh, and th that is documented and you're protected by that governance structure if you see what i'm saying and I think you're exactly right. If your service has Get in, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> if your service has specific um, worsening advice that they give to every patient for a presentation. So, for example, let's talk about head injury. So, um, the NICE guidelines have clear discharge instructions for head injury, which you can print off. An ambulance service that I've worked for in the past had a head injury advice leaflet. So, if you have a robust governance process and a robust guideline or written worsening advice that you can give a patient you can evidence that this is what you told the patient it's fine to shorthand that but you are 100% right Josh if you don't have that in place it does need to be written out so by that I mean if I was going to discharge a urinary tract infection I wouldn't write worsening advice given 
I would write, verbal worsening advice has been given to the patient. They have been advised to watch out for the red flags of flank pain, vomiting, high fever, feeling shivery, drowsy, really unwell or cold, as just examples. And then what they should do if those symptoms occur, which might be if these develop, they should call 999. Yeah, it's that old adage of if it's not written down, it didn't happen, isn't it? Fantastic point. If you end up in court in two years' time because the viral erty that you discharged actually tracked back, went into the brain and you ended up with a viral encephalitis and that person has now got neurological complications as a result of that, you have to be able to justify not only at the time you saw them that actually they didn't have like those symptoms then, which obviously is part of your clinical documentation, you need to be able to justify, well, what worsening advice did you give them? And trust me, two years later, you're not going to be able to remember that. And that brings us on to the topic of giving patients written worsening advice. Written worsening advice can really improve our governance, but it can also be detrimental. The benefits of written worsening advice is that we know that patients don't always remember everything we tell us verbally. Josh, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about um, memory and, and the, when we give advice. Yeah, so there's there's loads and loads of really interesting research out there about how fallible memory is. And we as a species really, really do not remember events accurately at all. So memory recall is fraught with inaccuracies, particularly when we're in stressful situations. And it can really easily be influenced by misinformation that occurs after the event so p- particularly if, if patients are, are telling their, their their family about it or, or their carers about what's wrong with them and and uh, and the treatment plan that's in place they tend to remember the last story that they told someone because that's how our brain works that's how our memory works and if that story was inaccurate then their recollection will be inaccurate And then when they come to tell that story to their next carer, oh, this is what I need to do. They told me to take four of these tablets twice a day, when actually it was two of these tablets four times a day. It can very easily be fought with inaccuracies. There's some evidence out there that shows anywhere between 40 to 80% of the medical information that we provide patients is forgotten almost immediately. And the greater the amount of information, so the, the more complex the plan that we're giving patients is, then the lower the proportion that is correctly recalled by them. The information that they do recall, almost half of that information that's remembered is incorrect. And, and again, as I said, this, this this comes back to the way that we remember things. We, we tend to use mental schemas, which is mental shortcuts and cheats within our mind to remember information that's happened recently. And that will be influenced by our previous medical history. So if they've had something similar to today's presentation, they might confuse it with what they had to do last time, despite the fact that the, the breathing difficulty that they had last time is different to the breathing difficulty that we're seeing them with today. And this is influenced by something called state dependency as well. So if patients are given information in a stressed environment, be that they're in pain, they're upset, uh, they're a little bit anxious because, again, they've got the ambulance around and a lot of strangers in their house. When they come to trying to remember all of that information that was given to them in a calmer environment that's not stressed, uh, they, they're less able to, to remember it accurately. Yeah, memory is really, really fallible. And there's lots of things going against us uh, when we're giving patients a, a plan and a detailed plan as we're going to want to do. So 
definitely writing that down is a brilliant idea. And uh, as as you you've said in the past, Simon, it adds so much more weight to uh, to our plan and uh, and the governance of our plan. It's not even just about memory. Sometimes it's how the patient has interpreted what you've told them. They can remember it, but their interpretation compared to what we delivered is actually different. Or sometimes the case of selective hearing. You can sit in an A&E reception and hear many patients all day come in and say, I called 111 and they told me I must be seen in A&E within two hours. And I know, having worked for 111 several years ago, that that isn't what 111 call advisors say. What they actually say is that you need to present to A&E within two hours, which means that you've got two hours to get there, not that A&E need to see you within two hours. But patients often take that as, I need to be seen in A&E by a doctor within two hours. So it's actually how patients perceive the information they've been given. So this is why written worsening advice is sometimes really useful to make sure one that patients can remember what they've been told in the heat of a situation but also that they could then go and double check their own interpretation of what they've been told in a, in that situation so written and worsening advice really improves governance but what we also need to look at is the cons of written worsening advice it's really easy for us especially in the current high demand uh, for resources, for us to go, here's a leaflet on fever, mum, read that, call us back if there's any problems. That can be just as detrimental as not using written worsening advice full stop. If we're going to use written worsening advice correctly, we need to verbally go through that and sit down with the patient or with the carer or guardian and go through the written worsening advice so that we are one, covering it verbally, but also covering it in the written form. So we're explaining everything step by step. We now know that this will have a significant improvement in their retention um, if we give both the written form and then verbally discuss through it. And that's what we should document in our paperwork. Not only the fact that we gave them a leaflet, that we basically went through there and we explained it step by step and what they need to do if certain things develop. And, and explaining with that clarity is really important and being specific in the things that we're telling the patient as well. So something else that the, the evidence tends to suggest is that patients remember more specific medical advice rather than general medical advice. So you need to get some rest probably won't be seen as that important to them, but you shouldn't work for the next two weeks. You shouldn't drive for the next X weeks. You You shouldn't do heavy lifting for the next whenever or until you've seen your GP in however many weeks tends to get through as important. So uh, being specific as well as clear and, and, and uh, explanative to patients. That's a great point, Josh. And I think a lot of us as clinicians forget that, that it's not just about the condition. If you are giving them a treatment that could affect them in some way, so for example, if we're going to give some opiate medications and then there's a risk that the patient might drive, we need to warn them about the consequences of those medications because we have a legal responsibility to make sure that they're, they're safe and they've been advised of the risks of driving or operating machinery after, say, opiate medications have been given. 
So it's not just about the condition. Could your treatment actually impact them in any way? We know that antibiotics can cause diarrhea. So, you know, what we need to sometimes explain to the patient what they need to do if their treatment doesn't work or if there's a complication from their treatment. These are all things that we need to think about. We need to give the patient an opportunity to ask questions about the worsening advice as we're going through. And part of that is about checking their understanding. So if a patient can ask questions and we give them the opportunity to ask questions and also we get them to reaffirm to us what we've discussed, we then know that they've understood what we're discussing. The final point of confirming someone's understood what we're talking about is if we are talking to someone where there might be a language barrier or some learning difficulties, then we need to change the way we deliver this information or use a resource like Language Line to make sure that that person has definitely understood the worsening advice that we've given them. And good advice for any patient, but particularly where there is that language barrier or potentially a barrier to understanding is, is getting either a carer or a next of kin in to hear about the plan as well and make sure they understand it, obviously with the patient's consent, uh, where that's appropriate. But uh, having having two minds to to support the patient to get better and, and pick them up if, if they get unwell is, is, is better than one. So finally, let's talk about referrals. And this has got to be an easy one, Simon, isn't it? Just refer every patient that you leave at home to see their GP the next day, uh, covers your ass and remain employed. Care about your patients, yeah? So I, I really, I really hate that saying and I hate it when people say it. I completely get the point that some people are trying to get across and I think it's used a little bit rashly, but I think it's really inappropriate. By doing what's right for our patients, by making sure that we've safety netted them correctly and by referring them if that's appropriate, we've automatically done what's right for them and that automatically covers us as a practitioner. The problem with that term is is it comes back to the whole debate of defensive versus defensible medicine and practice. And there's a clear difference between those two two terms. I think in the ambulance service, sometimes we practice defensively, which means that, oh, I'm going to take every patient to hospital because that means I can't possibly get in trouble. I'm going to refer every patient to a GP because then they take responsibility for that decision. And that's not what these professionals are there for. We are accountable professionals that are responsible and must be able to justify our decisions as per our HCPC standards of proficiency. So any decision that we make, even if that's a shared decision, we are still accountable for and we need to be comfortable with that decision. So no amount of phoning a GP and sending them to them or forcing them onto them is going to take that decision away from us or the accountability away from us. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll hold my hands up and admit that certainly when I was a junior paramedic, I referred an awful lot of patients back to their GP because I wasn't that confident in my own decision-making power and uh, my ability to non-convey patients, which is completely natural. Uh, and I'm sure there's another entire podcast we could do on Dunning-Kruger and all of that. But, you, you know, you, you realize that why why are you doing that just so you're not the last person that's seen this patient that that realistically isn't going to cover you if if 
it's it, if it was a bad decision or you've or you've done something wrong just because you weren't the last practitioner to see that patient isn't any kind of legal defense or, or any kind of moral defense and can you imagine if ambulances were getting called just to double check on a decision that was made by another healthcare professional you'd be pretty miffed off if you're being asked to see and double check someone else's work and it, and rightly so it's it's not really that acceptable so I completely agree with your point, Simon, that uh, shared decision making is a different kettle of fish. If uh, if you want some advice or you want some senior support, that is a different kettle of fish. And then there's going to be some ambulance services where there is a policy in place that you have to consult a senior clinician for certain patient groups, very young children, paediatrics being perhaps the, mo- the most common and most obvious. And again, that is to support that decision making, not to take away any accountability or responsibility for that patient you quite rightly hit the nail on the head josh that you know there's a difference in decision making between a newly qualified clinician and a more experienced clinician and actually these decisions will become more comfortable especially in your area of specialism as you get more seniority One issue with the ambulance service at large and something that's probably going to have to change but this isn't something that any of us really can influence it's going to have to be a strategic decision is you are right a lot of these policies are written such as they must be seen by their gp the same day and actually i question how many of them policies that are written by the ambulance service have actually been discussed with the people that were actually enforcing these referrals onto i've spoken to a lot of my colleagues in primary care and they're not actually i think a lot of the ccg contracts for gps they're not contractually obligated to provide top cover for the ambulance service we should be providing that in-house we should have our own senior clinicians that can provide us with guidance to make these decisions and support now unfortunately those systems don't exist in some places and actually therefore by the very nature that these senior clinicians and these senior doctors the job that they do they have taken that on for us even though maybe they shouldn't have shared decision making is a really good concept i just think we need to be careful how we deliver it you know it's fine to phone a pediatrician or the pediatric registrar on call and discuss a patient with them but they're not there to make the decision for you they're maybe there just to as a soundboard to bounce the the, this is the decision you think is appropriate to make and that you basically just want to discuss it with someone else as a bit of shared decision making or the same with the gp i think we also need to accept that actually gps work differently than us and primary care works different than us by our very nature of the fact that we have been ingrained to handle cardiac arrests and traumas and stuff that needs immediate action and that becomes very much ingrained in our practice primary care doesn't necessarily work that way and something that we think i need to speak to the gp now actually probably could wait a week or two for the gp so i think we probably need to look and do some education as a profession in the ambulance service around time frames risk management and actually accepting that things don't always need to be seen immediately and it might be a referral might be I'm sending you a discharge summary from my electronic patient clinical record to the GP, asking them to follow the patient up at their convenience within the next couple of weeks routinely. And that's just as fine as see them now, or actually sometimes more appropriate. So I just think we need to remember that GPs aren't always there or shouldn't always be there at our beck and call 
to um to drop everything in their busy clinics to give us advice just because we want cover for our decisions a colleague and friend of mine uh, who works in hospital is quite notorious for having a habit of when an ambulance crew bring an atmist patient into recess uh, once they've finished their atmist and taken uh, and, and answered any questions before they, he starts assessing the patient he says what do you want me to do about it or what do you want me to do the reason that he does that is testing knowledge and 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 it's a learning opportunity but i think it's a very good point that if we ref- if we're bringing a patient to another practitioner whether or not we're going into hospital or uh, whether we're choosing to refer them to a gp we should have in our mind what we want from that individual and that might be a, a telephone follow-up or something like that in a few days to ensure that we're on that road of, of recovery that we're expecting or it, or it might be for some further investigations but we should have a reason that we're referring to that practitioner and if we can't think of a reason then maybe we need to question do we need to make that referral you mentioned simon about gp notifications and i think that's always quite useful if you've got a gp alert function as part of your e-patient record um, that can be very useful sometimes that doesn't always work as effectively or sometimes that might not be available to us and uh, if we're sending a patient particularly if we're sending a patient to a gp i think it is professional and really good continuity of care to send them either with a copy of our patient record or actually a letter i think we're quite used to receiving letters from gps that are referring into hospitals or rather picking up the letters that have been written for the medics as we're taking them into uh, amu or something like that but writing a letter to the gp to send the patient in with in the next morning or after the weekend is is really really professional it's really good continuity of care and again don't be afraid to to write that letter with that plan in and your assessment and document the fact that you've done that in your own notes again just just adds to that that governance to be honest the same can be said for writing in care plans if if you've got a patient that has carers four times daily and you want them to do something you want them to be checking on something and you want them to be looking for red flags you need to write it in the care folder so uh, we need to get in, in the habit of that to ensure that all of the people that are involved with this patient's care uh, are aware of the plan that we've put in place. One thing we haven't talked about, and it's just as important, is shared decision making with the patient or the patient's next of kin or whoever um, has power of attorney for them. We should document that the patient's happy and in agreement with the um, plan that we've discussed and any questions that they raised and thoughts that they had or their opinions, especially if they have maybe declined to go to hospital and what we've done is negotiated maybe a plan that isn't quite what we wanted maybe we felt they needed to go to hospital but they really don't want to so we've negotiated a a different plan instead that actually will get them some antibiotics at home and we'll see how they go and but those conversations are really important to uh to get into our paperwork and document right well i think we might have kept that under an hour obviously i'm saying this before i've edited the thing so if you're sat listening on your podcast or on spotify and it's got 63 minutes on the on the clock then uh, i look a bit stupid but hopefully we've managed to make that as concise as we can and it's actually quite a big topic so let's summarize shall we discharging a patient is a riskier area of practice but sometimes so is taking them to hospital 
So if we've decided that the patient is suitable for discharge from our care, we need to ensure that they're appropriately safety netted to safeguard us and to safeguard them. We need to ask ourselves, what if things go well? We need to explain to the patient what we think is wrong with them, as well as how long we expect their illness and symptoms to last. We need to clearly explain what the treatment process is, as well as any medications that they need to take or things they need to do to ensure they get better. We need to ask ourselves what else it could be or what if I'm wrong? And we need to explain very clearly to the patient the signs, symptoms and red flags that they need to look out for that indicate they might be getting worse. We need to explain to them very clearly when they need to recontact a healthcare provider and in which circumstances they need to contact us back on 999. Where appropriate, we need to add additional layers of safety. That might be getting the family involved with the advice, arranging a callback either from ourselves or the patient's own GP, or referring the patient onto another healthcare provider for follow-up. In addition to this clear verbal explanation, where possible it's good practice to give clear written advice, as we know that memory is fallible and patients may not remember our conversation accurately. If we're making a referral, we need to ask ourselves why we want that referral, what do we want the other healthcare practitioner to do, and what do we want this to achieve. We need to ensure that there's good continuity of care, either through a verbal handover to the other healthcare professional, electronic alert or discharge notice, or just resort to a letter. And finally, we need to ensure, as well as this airtight safety net and plan to support our patients, we've documented this thoroughly in our own patient record. Yeah, and we need to make sure that we document in our clinical notes the outcome of that conversation, the agreed actions of the other practitioner or um, what we've discussed. And we need to document their name of the person we spoke to. So it's always good to get that information. It's also really important to document conversations with patients. So anything that we've agreed with the patient, document it in our notes exactly how the conversation went. Okay, so thanks very much for listening to this episode. As always, there's going to be an article on the website generalbroadcast.org.uk. If you've got any comments for us on the on the podcast or any questions or requests for future subjects that you would find really helpful, you can email us at generalbroadcastpodcast@outlook.com. It's always really helpful if you can share the podcast. So share us on Twitter, share us in your uni groups, give us a five-star rating and review on the iTunes app store. Again, that really increases our visibility. If you don't think we're worth five stars, then keep your opinion to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And we will be back with you again next month for another general broadcast. So join us then. Thank you. Thanks very much from me. See you next month.